Okay. All right. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time to go into the scriptures to learn about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done to save us from our many sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. We thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you have given us to teach us and to sanctify us in the truth of the gospel. Who has gifted us with all kinds of gifts, even to serve you in the body of Christ. We pray for ability to hear from you this morning and also for your people to have ears to hear not from me but from you and be edified, encouraged and be brought to the knowledge of Christ. We honor you, we glorify you and in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning everyone here and those who are listening from wherever they are. We have a lot of listeners who join us from the different parts of the world and that by God's doing. And we do appreciate their prayers and words of encouragement. We pray for them. We pray that the Lord continues to draw his people to himself, even through the weakness of our preaching. And I'm going to say a few words, maybe. Let me... Let us go to our text, and then I'll say some statements, if I can remember them by the end of the reading. <laughs> this morning we are going to be in First Samuel chapter 7. In First Samuel chapter 7, Israel defeats the Philistines. First Samuel Chapter 7, Israel defeats the Philistines, and this is what was recorded for us. Then the man of Kijath, Jiriam, came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kijath, Jiriam, a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him alone. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bows and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, 
Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a war burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shan and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and that's the word of the Lord Jesus. And there's a lot of gospel. You won't even believe it. <laughs> a lot of preachers will tell you of how great Samuel was as a man of God, and they will not go beyond that because they do not know how to read the story of Christ. This is not about Samuel. This is and was about the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was going to say, before we go to our message, that to be, to be benefited from our messages. You cannot just come and listen. I've said this previously. You can't come today, listen to one message, disappear for two, three months, come back to the next one. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Not the way that I've been given to teach. You have to follow the arguments because they feed into another. We are developing a story of Christ. God is developing the story of Christ. So the detail that we've learned in the previous messages 
from the book of 1 Samuel, they do feed into how we interpret the rest of the book. So you can't be coming in and out. It's not helpful. You won't benefit from the glorious things that the Lord, you won't see them as glorious because you are lacking a lot of context. Also, there's a lot of content that the Lord gives me to put in one message. In a lot of places, what I share in one message is content for a month and a half. I put it in one message because I have a whole lot more content to share. The Lord continues to open things for me to bring to his church, to feed his church with gospel nuggets. So we have to tie the pieces together in this message, in the next message, so that if at some point you have to share with somebody the understanding, you know how to connect the pieces for them and say, oh, yeah, I know what this means. This is how it relates to the gospel. So my point is you cannot absorb any of my messages in one sitting. It's impossible. But for me, this is more than four times. I write, I revise, I preach, I listen to the message after I've preached. So that's like four times for every single message. So if you do that, you're going to also have better retention of what was shared. So I want to encourage people to go back and listen. Really listen to the messages. It's helpful. And with that... Let's go to our message. Our message title is Ebenezer. Ebenezer. This far, the Lord has helped us, Ebenezer. And if you want a second title, the Philistines have been defeated. The Philistines have been defeated. God loves preaching. God is a preacher. He is the preacher. He loves preaching. And that means talking about his son. And so, because of his son, he made creation, all of creation, to preach Christ. All of creation is a sermon on Jesus. These are big statements. All of creation is a sermon on Jesus. He made us that he may preach Christ. Sin came that he may preach Christ. He gave the law that he may preach Christ. The law is not the end of things. I wish all these reformed people would understand this. The law is not the end of things. Christ is the end. Christ is the end of the law. The law is only but an instrument in service to the revelation 
of the person of Christ. And God wrote the story of Christ in the lives of the people of old and recorded it for us. And even our own lives here and now bear witness to the story of Christ. Because, as the scripture says, of him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, all things are of God. All things are of God. All things are of Christ. So God has just finished preaching a sermon, a wonderful sermon in 1 Samuel chapter 6. A sermon on the problem that the law causes to sinners, even as it was carried in the Ark of the Covenant. There were two tablets of stone, that is the Ten Commandments, that were in the Ark of the Covenant. That's what was killing the people. So he presented the problem to them and to us and then gave the solution. He said, this is the problem that you have. You are sinners and I'm going to show you that you are sinners by bringing something that will kill you. But I'm going to also show you the solution. I'm going to give you the solution. So the Philistines had captured the ark from Israel when they went to war. And God delivered both Israel and the ark into the hands of the Philistines. The ark was captured by the Philistines. That is the only way they could have defeated Israel. God had to give them the victory over his own people. And we talked about this when the ark was captured, that the capturing of the ark was the capturing of Christ Jesus, who submitted himself to death. He submitted himself to his own creation because the Philistines could not capture the ark by themselves. It's impossible. God cannot be captured. He submitted himself. But in the matter of the defeat of Israel in the capturing of the ark, it is God who did it. Because there's no defeat or victory for anyone apart from God causing it. If a nation is defeated, God has caused it. And the one that has the victory, it is also by him. It does not matter even if the nations involved do not know anything about the God of the Bible. Know nothing about God's absolute sovereignty. God does not care for that. That does not stop him, that, that does not stop him from being God. And of course, the victor nation, the victorious nation, has a tendency to burn incense to their own power, to their own wonder weapons, 
and training, better planning. But God denies that. He does not give victory to any works of men. He calls it arrogance. He says it's boasting. It's like an ex-boasting, and yet it is in someone's hands who is using it for chopping, for chopping wood. The ex cannot lift itself. The wielder of the ex is he or she who is giving it power to chop. And God says the nations are like exes in his hands. He is the power behind it and he uses them to do the chopping for him. And that's Isaiah 10. You have to always know Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10 teaching. Very wonderful teaching of God's sovereignty over the nations. So the Philistines bring the ark as a spoil of war to the idol Dagon. But sooner than later, Dagon must submit to the ark of the Lord God of Israel, the power of God. So Dagon fell before the ark of the Lord, not one time, but two times. But of course, the Dagon worshippers, those early morning worshippers, <laughs> they came early in the morning and they tried to prop up their false religion. That's what they were doing. In raising Dagon up, they were propping up their false religion. But to no avail. So the ark began causing problems not just for Dagon, but for the Philistines themselves. They began to die in their thousands. And many were getting sick from the pestilence, from the tumors, from the hemorrhoids. And if you go for the literal rendering of the hemorrhoids, these were infections in their private parts. That's what he says. And the point being, sin has infected all of humanity in the most private of our parts. And what has struck them, and what had struck them, was not some untreated bug that was found in their city water. It was not something external to them. No, it was something that was in them, that was their sin, and also because of the presence of the ark. As I said, the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the very moral law that people talk about does not get people healed from their pestilence. The law does not get along well with sinners. The law does not get along well with sinners. It kills them. You're not going to hear much of this about the law in what passes for gospel preaching in our time. The law does not get well with sinners. 
It is not the friend of sinners. Only grace is the friend of sinners. The law kills. Where there's sin and law, there must needs be death. Because the wages of sin is death. So this is what the Philistines are experiencing. So a solution must be found for the ark. A solution must be found. It must be a God-given solution for it to work. Otherwise, the killing continues unabated. So God sovereignly spoke through the priests and diviners of the Philistines and they delivered a remarkable solution. They said the ark could not go back to its place, go back to its place empty. It had to be accompanied by a trespass offering, by a sin offering. It just does not go back on your testimony of righteousness. It does not go back on your testimony of good works, of your sincerity. It has to go with something that dies. And anything short of that is emptiness to God. And that to say, the law does not and could not go back to God unfulfilled, unsatisfied. There must be satisfaction to God's wrath, satisfaction to his justice. If there's going to be peace between him and sinners. And this peace came by way of a trespass offering. And the law was given to teach this reality by it causing death through sin and teaching the whole sacrificial system, the whole tabernacle system. God said, I'm going to be among you. But this is what's going to happen. I'm going to have to teach you the way that you approach me. You're just not going to come and talk to me. You know, you're just going to come into my presence. I'm going to teach you about the tabernacle system that it has a priesthood and that is a sacrificial system. So before you think about coming to where I am in the Holy of Holies, have the right person to represent you. Number one, bring the right sacrifice. Otherwise, one more step, you're dead. <laughs> because holiness was among them. So it was proposed that a new cut be made to carry the ark. The cut to be made not of metal, but of wood. And the cut to be drawn by two milking cows that had never been yoked. And together with that, there had to be images made of what was killing the people. Images of golden tumors and the golden mice. And these items collectively preaching the person and work of Christ from different angles, different vantage points, but 
united in the testimony of Christ. This is how complicated Christ is. You cannot just preach him in one sermon. There's not a single sermon or number of sermons that can exhaust the person of Christ. So you have all these different things that are pointing to the same person. Then you cut the cows, the ark that is being carried, the golden tumors, and the golden mice. They're pointing the one and same person, but bringing a different aspect of Christ. So the new cut was a new body to be prepared for Christ. Only a new body, a body to be, to be prepared by God through the Holy Spirit conception. That's what was going to carry the burden that the law had brought. Christ Jesus is God's tabernacle. And he is not of this creation. That's Hebrews teaching. Christ was not of this creation. He is not of Adam. Hence, a new cut. Anticipating the incarnation. The taking of human flesh. That's what incarnation means. The taking of human flesh. The addition of human flesh to the Logos. The Logos That's the word of God. Christ is the word of God that tabernacled in human flesh. So if the cut was not new, then there could not be any imputation of sin. Because sin cannot be imputed to that which is already clean. That is why in the Old Testament system, the animals to which sin was imputed, they had to have no blemish, no blemish on them. And that looking to Christ, the sinless one. So an old cut is still old wine, and that is Adam. They cannot help a sinner. So the fruitful two cows that were yoked to pull the cart, had to carry the ark, and this bed and back to where it belonged, and to die in the process by way of sacrifice. See all these little details. The people of Israel did not take the cows to own them and to milk them. No, they were to be sacrificed as soon as they got to Israel. And that to say, those cows were also types of Christ. Why would they die? They were innocent, right? As Christ was innocent. So it is he who was proven of God, Christ Jesus, to be fruitful of righteousness and was appointed to carry the burden of the fulfillment and removal of the curse of the law. So I was saying, the fruitful two cows had to carry the ark and its burden back to where it belonged. 
and to die in the process by way of sacrifice. And that's to prove that they also were types of Christ. And that connecting to Jesus as the fruitful one of God, the righteous one who was appointed to carry the burden of the fulfillment and removal of the curse of the law and even the removal of our sin. Christ alone is he who was appointed to carry the law back to God, to honor the law by his own obedience. And so the cows were faithful in carrying the ark to its appointed place. The text says they did not turn left or right. And that was Christ Jesus who did not turn left or right. He did not miss a single bit ever in his obedience to God. In completing the mission, in completing the work that the Father had given him to do. So the two cows of the honor cord, driven by God, made it all the way to Beth Shemesh, the territory of Israel, and they stopped in the field of the one Joshua. And no human being told them to stop. But when they did stop, that also ended the curse that was on the Philistines. And the field of Joshua in which they stopped was the field of Christ Jesus, the greater Joshua. And that saying Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law ends in Christ. In this field of Joshua the law finds its fulfillment. The matter of the New Testament being represented by the field is very common in the Old Testament. When Rebecca came with Eliezer, she found Isaac in the field. Rebecca, a type of the church, she meets her husband. Isaac, a type of Christ, in the field. Ruth and Boaz, Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field. And here the ark comes with the cows and they rest in the field of the one Joshua. The money that had been used to betray Jesus, they took it and bought a field to bury strangers. You and I, the strangers, being buried, finding a resting place in the field that was purchased by the blood of Christ. Broken pots in the field of Christ. The New Testament is the resting place of God's people. So the field was a picture of the New Testament because in this testament, 
the condemnation was removed. The curse from God's people was removed. In other words, all the elect were justified at the same time. See that the curse of the ark was removed from the Philistines not because of their faith. No, the curse was removed from them, all, all of them, the whole territory of the Philistines. Had the curse removed from them for only one reason, because the ark had been returned to its place, carrying the things that were agreeable with God, the types of Christ. That was the only condition to stop the curse. The ark had been carried with all the requirements for it to go back to its place. Types of Christ accompanied the ark. That's the only condition of salvation. Also, accompanying the ark were the images of the golden mice and tumors. And these being made of gold and not carrying in themselves that which was killing the people. That's the reason why they were made of gold. They did not get the real mice or rats. They made them of gold. As we observed that the bronze serpent was made of bronze also for the same reason that it was a serpent, but it did not have the venom. And that which did not have the venom became the source of salvation for those who were being beaten. And so, with respect to the golden tumors and the mice, that was saying the atonement for our sins was going to be by this Christ Jesus in whom there's no sin. That's the point of that. Christ who was even better than silver and gold. So the matter of salvation is really outside of anything that anybody does. To cause it or to maintain it, no one maintains salvation. (laughs) You cannot maintain salvation. It's too big a task to be given to Paul. He cannot keep it. It has to be kept for him. That's what the text said in 1 Peter. So passion is very good in its proper context. Passion for God, for Christ is good in when properly directed. But do not be hoodwinked by passionate preachers who elevate their passion over what Christ has done. They tend to minimize what Christ has done that their passion may be exalted. Oh, what a faithful man of God or woman she is or he is. No, that's foolishness. Christ alone is the faithful one. These people, kinds of people that I'm talking about, they have a tendency to put you back on the treadmill of works, righteousness, by appealing to your commitment or lack of commitment. Yeah? (laughs) And not appealing to Christ's commitment on your behalf. Well, that's the gospel. 
It's Christ's faithfulness on your behalf. It's Christ's commitment on your behalf. Christ's righteousness on your behalf. So that which was given by God in the place of the sinner to remove the condemnation was enough itself of itself for all time. And that to say, Christ Jesus perfected forever the sanctified. There's no need for us to keep carrying the ark. There's no need for us to keep claiming that we are doing the law. It is burdensome. The law is burdensome. Seeing that the New Testament clearly tells us that and this being written to the redeemed church, that the law is the letter that kills. It is a ministry of death and condemnation. This is New Testament language with regards to the law. But the people of Bethsemesh had not understood the matter of the law. They had not understood it. And so God had to give them some extra summer classes on the law. He had to give them an extra 10 minutes at the end of his sermon. Like I, my teaching on the law, you don't seem to have gotten it right. Let me give you a few extra lessons. They determined to open the Ark of the Covenant to see if there were any missing parts, any missing items, thinking that the Philistines may have had ability to steal some items and sell them on the flea market or on eBay or Craigslist. <laughs> and you can imagine someone coming and bragging about how they bought the Ark of God's Covenant on eBay for cheap, even. Oh, I got it on eBay, discounted, not realizing that they were in possession of death. The moment they did that, the moment that they opened the ark, 50,070 men were killed in one day. And we observed from that, that the law continues with its testimony as the letter of death. It doesn't change. If anyone tries to open the covenant of the letter, it will kill them. That's what God gave it to do. And if Paul, Apostle Paul, was present at this time as the apostle of Christ Jesus, he would have said this to the people of Bethsemesh before they opened the ark. Galatians 5, verse 1 to 5. This is what Paul would have said. What he would have said to them, men and brethren, stand fast. Therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Stand fast. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Did you not see what the yoke of bondage 
did to the Philistines. Do not be entangled. Again, the yoke of bondage is clearly the law. Do not be entangled again with this thing. Because Christ has set you free from it. Don't go back to it. Indeed, I, Paul, verse 2, say to you that if you become circumcised, in other words, if you open the ark, bring yourself back under Moses. That's the point. Christ will profit you nothing. In other words, you are still under the curse of the law. Because the profit, the advantage of Christ is the removal of the curse for you. And if you put yourself back under the law, you bring back the curse. Verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. I testify again to every man who claims to be under the law, claims to be doing the law, Circumcision was the rite of passage of bringing oneself under the law of Moses. And many in the professing church have many ways to circumcise people and bring them back under the bondage of law, the yoke of bondage. Just a million ways to bring you back under bondage. And Paul says, if you do that, you are a debtor to keep the whole law. Have you ever hear, have you ever had these preachers and these people on Facebook who claim to be doing the law because they want to maintain a balance? There's no balance when it comes to grace. <laughs> you are not balancing Christ with your law keeping. There's no balance there. You are not balancing anything. Christ cannot be balanced by your law keeping. You want balance. <laughs> Paul says you're a debtor to the whole law. You want to do one thing about the law? Then you are responsible for the whole thing. Just go all the way out. You never hear them argue that. And what has become of these people, verse 4, you have become estranged. You have been severed. You have been separated from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And they'll come with this seemingly intelligent argument and say, oh, we are not doing the law for justification. We are doing it for the love. Well, you open the ark for the love of the ark and see what happens. You open the ark. I love the ark. I'm going to open it and see if everything is in there. And God is going to teach you a very good lesson. But here the contrast, pay attention to the contrast, verse 5. This is where the true believers redeemed are, verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, that's the distinction, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The redeemed wait through the Spirit, not through their laboring under the law for the hope of righteousness. And the hope of righteousness is Christ. And that by faith. And that by the Spirit. 
So the Spirit has replaced Moses. Christ has replaced Moses. Faith has replaced Moses. Not by law keeping. I'll never agree with these people. They'll come and say, oh, we are sovereign grace. And they still want to talk law. No way, man. We don't agree. We will never make peace with that. I will never make peace with that. As long as the Bible continues to be the Bible, I will never make peace with that. There's a proper distinction. But then, when you say that, that's what many come and call antinomianism. That's anti-law. When you make that clear distinction between law and faith as Paul has just done. They say, oh, that's antinomian. The truth, of, the truth of the matter is that the law is not of faith. That's a line from Apostle Paul. The law is not of faith. And there's no way to spin that on CNN or Fox News and make it fly with those who know the truth. You cannot spin this truth. To me, that's just a sign that people have not yet understood God's own arguments about Christ. They do not know the Christ of the Bible. So, the law still retains its function to increase sin, to condemn, to give the knowledge of sin, to increase God's wrath, it still remains as the ministry of death and condemnation. When you go and read your Bible, you're going to see all these things and say, Pastor, is not lying. That's what my text says. But it is not for causing righteousness in the sinner. The Lord does not cause righteousness in the sinner as is professed by many contrary to the scriptures. Righteousness is by the faith of Christ alone, by his obedience alone, and that righteousness freely imputed to his people, freely given to his people. So the ark is with the people of Bethshemesh, and it is proving too, too hot to handle. And in First Samuel 6, verse 20, this is what they say. And the man of Bethlehem said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And whom shall it go up from us? This is what they said in the wake of the looking that caused them death. The looking that caused them to die. Everybody is looking. The question is, what are they looking at? Look at the law, at your own goodness, at your own performance. It brings death. It kills you. But if you look at the bronze serpent, you will live. But you can't look at both the law and the bronze serpent. You do not have telescopic eyes like a chameleon. 
The chameleon can look at different directions at the same time. One eye looking to the front and the other one in the back or to the sideways or up. Those are telescopic eyes. Only chameleons can do that. But the Bible does not teach us to have chameleon eyes when it comes to faith. It doesn't say look to Jesus and look to Mount Sinai. It says looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the perfecter of faith. The Bible does not teach looking at the law for sanctification. It doesn't teach looking at the law for righteousness. It says look to Christ. Have this attitude that was in Jesus. Jesus is now your standard. You look to Jesus. Just as God has forgiven us in Christ, so you forgive one another. Christ is our standard. We look to Christ. So look to the law for sanctification and to Jesus for righteousness, for justification. It's false teaching. It's actually false teaching. But this is what they said. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Who is able to approach him? That's a good question. If someone has understood the law, that's exactly what they're going to say. <laughs> Who is able to stand? Because I am not able to stand. If you have understood the law, you're not going to come and tell people, oh, you're keeping the law. No. You say, who's able to stand against this holy Lord God? And this question was asked and answered in Psalm 24, verse 3 to 5. Psalm 24, 3 to 5. The psalmist says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who is qualified to ascend? Or, who may stand in his holy place? Who? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It's the same question. None of Adam's race. And then here for the answer, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Clean hands and a pure heart. Who is able of God's creation to stand up and raise their hand that they have clean hands and a pure heart? Not a single one. So why are they claiming that they're keeping the law? <laughs> Christ alone fits that description, clean hands and a pure heart, and has never sworn deceitfully. He alone is able to approach. And we approach God by him and in him. By his merits alone, we have to be in Christ to approach. Christ has qualified us to be regarded as those who have clean hands and a pure heart. 
but only in him. And because of that, because we are in him, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So we receive salvation. We do not work salvation. We receive salvation. So the ark must be relocated. The ark must be relocated because the camera must keep moving. The story of Christ must keep moving. It does not stagnate. The story of Christ has to keep moving. God is moving it. So we will go to First Samuel 7. And that to say, oh, that was the introduction. <laughs> That's all introduction. And the beauty of this message is even yet to begin. That's the wonder of a gospel-centered hermeneutic. You glean more from the text. First Samuel 7. Then the man of Kijath, or Kijath, Jeriam, came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated it and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And that would imply that Abinadab was a Levite because his son was consecrated to keep the ark of the Lord. The ministry of the ark was only for the Levites. Verse 2, verse Samuel 7. So it was that the ark remained in Kijath, Jiriam, a long time, it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the house of Israel longed for the Lord. Yes, even disobedient, rebellious children do long for their parents. It's natural, we know that. So do not be surprised by that statement that Israel, in its rebellion and sin, did long for the Lord. Israel has had a history of experiencing God. God has been in their presence, and they do miss that manifestation of God in their presence. I think that's the idea. Verse 3, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him, alone, serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So this was many years after Eli and his sons had died and Samuel was the judge, was the prophet and high priest of Israel. And Someone says, if you are thinking of returning to the Lord, you have to repent of your false gospel. Repent from your foreign gods and your Ashtoreths. The Ashtoreths, these were the female or the female god or goddess of the Phoenicians, also called Ishtar by the Assyrians. That's a reference to the same idol. But the female version of the 
bells that are among you and prepare your hearts to hear from the Lord and to serve him alone and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines we're going to develop the understanding of the Philistines in this message. The Philistines continue to be like a cat with 9,000 lives. They seem to be defeated. But they never go away completely. Victory over them is always temporary. But that for the gospel testimony of sin, that our seeming victories over sin are only temporary. Because sooner or later, the Philistines that we thought we destroyed, the sin that we thought we had stopped or overcame with a New Year's resolution will come back again to cause us trouble. Verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the bells and the asteroids and served the Lord only. And of course, that did not last long because in the next chapter, they shall be rejecting God <laughs> and asking for their own king. And they say, well, give us a king like the rest of the nations around us, we also want to have our own king. So they are rejecting God. And yet they said, well, we just return to God. Verse 5. And someone said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. So Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Samuel had all Israel gathered to Mizpah that he may pray for them as their mediator before God. So Samuel was a type of Christ, making intercession for the people because of their sins. And the people did confess their sins before the Lord and said, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. And how many times is that written in the Old Testament? We have sinned against the Lord. It's a constant refrain of Israel's experience with sin. That was their testimony under the law. Because that's all you can do. That's all you can say to one degree or another. We have sinned. I have sinned. So the whole congregation of Israel carried this confession with them to say the church of Christ ultimately 
is it that alone makes true confession? They agree with God. That's what confession means, to say the same words as someone. As someone. So they make the true confession that they have fallen short. They have sinned before the Lord and have no other righteousness to, pro- to profess before God other than that which God gives them in Christ. I have sinned, he's saying I have no other righteousness. I've come short of the righteousness that God requires. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the Philistines had about the gathering of the children of Israel at Mizpah. And you have to give it to them, the Philistines. The Philistines loved war. They were a belligerent people. And I wonder sometimes if we do not have some Philistines who were, who survived the ark, who are still left over in the deep state, in the White House. <laughs> Always ready for war. And had some good intelligence, good intelligence, it seems, because as soon as Israel does something, they know. So they gathered and went against Israel. They were already ready to go to war. They did not even need much preparation to go against Israel. They just heard that Israel was gathered and the first thing that came to their mind was, let us go after them and attack and kill them. But what does that mean? And that to say, sin does not need much motivation to overtake one who is a sinner. It's ready. It is always ready. It shows up uninvited. Sin is always ready to come and mess you up. Even when one is in prayer to God, as Israel was with Samuel, the Philistines showed up. The Philistines showed up when Israel was in the middle of prayer with their God-appointed priest, and they show up. Sin comes even in the seemingly private moments that we have with God. You're trying to pray. You're trying to read your Bible. You're trying to listen to a good message, and the Philistines show up. They do. The Philistines show up. They just had that they were doing some godly thing, and they show up. They did not say, oh, we're going to respect them. When they're done, 
with worshiping the true God, then we'll attack them. No, 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 no. We want to get them just when they're doing it. Verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. That is it right there. Israel appealed not to their own prayers. They did not appeal to their own righteousness. They did not appeal to their fear and tears. They appealed to Samuel, the man that God appointed for them, the man that God loved, the man that God hears and said, you intercede for us as Israel did with Moses when they were being beaten by the fiery serpents. They did not go to God and say, oh, you God fight the Philistines for us. They said, you Moses, you go and talk to God and tell him to remove the fiery serpents. <laughs> they proposed the solution to their sin. Remove the fiery serpents. God says, no, I'm not removing the fiery serpents. I'm going to have Moses to raise a bronze serpent. And so here Israel says, you intercede for us. You speak to God for us with loud cries and tears. To him who is able to hear you, that he may save us, that he may deliver us, that he may justify us, deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. Christ Jesus, whoever lives, to make intercession for us, that we may be saved from the hand of the Philistines that we may be saved from the hand of sin, the power of sin, the power of the law. The Philistines here and now have been defeated, but they still do come to cause trouble. And that is why Romans 8 says, Christ Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And if we sin, we have Christ Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins. We do sin, and that's the attack from the Philistines. Verse 9. And someone took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, Even as this was happening, this is what Samuel determined to do in his intercession for Israel against the Philistines. He did not organize the army of Israel and say, you take your positions. You take your hand grenades, you take your AK rifles, you take your machine guns. He says, no, this is how we're going to fight this thing. I'm going to take a lamb and sacrifice it. That is my weapon of war. Pay attention to that. That's how he's fighting. They know that the Philistines are coming. So he took a suckling lamp and offered it to the Lord as a burnt offering and that to say as a type of Christ and the death of Christ because it is only the offering of Christ that wins battles. That's the point. 
His intercession was by the blood of the sacrifice. Why do that? If the problems caused by the Philistines had nothing to do with God. Why offer a sacrifice? If the problems that were being caused by the Philistines had nothing to do with God himself. Who is bringing the Philistines to them? The burnt offering was not for the benefit of the Philistines. And it was not mad to the Philistines to make the Philistines happy. It was to God. For the benefit of Israel. In the face of the Philistines. So if the Philistines need intercession by way of a lamp sacrificed through a God-appointed mediator for them to be defeated. The Philistines can only be defeated by the offering of a lamp by a God-appointed mediator. Then it means they represent sin. They represent sin. That sin cannot be defied, cannot be overcome by our own strength, not by our own prayers, not by our own resolutions. Even the Jonathan Edwards resolutions, those are hopeless. But by looking to the lamp that was given to death to cause the defeat of the Philistines, And that is why four things have been put together to happen together. Pay attention to this. There are four things that are happening here. As soon as Israel is gathered at Mizba, there are four things. Pay attention to how they are all happening at the same time. Number one, the gathering of Israel at Mizba by the one man, Samuel. Samuel has gathered all his people in one place. Mizba. Number two, the people confess their sin. The confession of sin by Israel at Mizba. Number three, as this is happening, the appearance of the Philistines. The Philistines also appear when all this is happening. Number four, the intercession by way of prayer and sacrifice by Samuel. This is all happening at the same time. Let's see if my thinking is correct. Because if I am correct, then we have some wonderful things. Verse 10. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Do not read that fast. As Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines also drew near. There's some excellent gospel detail in that. 
as Samuel the high priest was offering up the burnt sacrifice. At that time, at that very moment, the Philistines also drew near to do battle against Israel. What is that saying? Why draw to battle at this very time of sacrifice? It is saying, at that moment that Christ Jesus was offering himself on the cross as the burnt offering. It was for the cause against the Philistines. (laughs) It was for the cause against sin that had approached and was approaching to destroy his people, the territory of his people to destroy them. So the sacrifice was Christ. And the Philistines were a picture of sin. And they meet where Samuel has gathered all of God's people at Mizpah. And on the cross, with respect to Christ, the Philistines, by way of sin, also gather against Christ and his people where he had gathered them to himself on the cross. The Lord Jesus had gathered to himself all his church and through tears and loud cries was making intercession for them against the Philistines, against the condemnation of sin. Christ Jesus gathered his people to himself on the cross, by election, they were gathered to him. By union, they were united to him. We were united with him in his death and resurrection. By representation, he represented us. And he could not represent us if we were not united to him. So we were gathered to him even as he was making the sacrifice because the Philistines were coming. And the Philistines could only be stopped this way by the crucified Christ, by the lamb that was offered by Samuel. That was the picture. Let's see if that is correct. But the Lord thundered. This is 1 Samuel 7, verse 10. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. The Lord thundered that day. That day. Which day? The day of salvation. That day. It was that day that the Lord thundered against the Philistines. To cause the salvation of his people. It is the day of his cross that God thundered on all of our sins and unrighteousness. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 50 to 52. 
Matthew says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And yielded up his spirit. He cried out with a loud voice. Verse 51, then, this is what happened in the after, immediate aftermath of that. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. The Holy of Holies is where only the high priest was allowed to go in one time on the Day of Atonement. So it was torn in two from top to bottom, which means a way had been opened by God from top. It did not happen from bottom to top. That would have been man tearing the veil up. It's God who tore it from top to bottom. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quagged, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. This was the thundering of the Lord against the Philistines. There's some serious quaking. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. They were raised not just to physical life, which they were, as in the immediate aftermath, but they were raised to the new life of justification in Christ. They were raised justification. They were raised from the condemnation of the Philistines, from the condemnation of sin. So the Philistines confused. Sin defeated. The Philistines overcome. Sin brought to an end by the offering of himself. Verse 11. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. The Philistines, driven away from condemnation of God's people, they were driven out, not using the ark but by way of sacrifice. That's how you drive the Philistines out, by way of sacrifice. Sin is not afraid of your law-keeping. I'm going to say this again to all the (laughs) law-keepers. Sin is not afraid of your law-keeping. Not at all. It knows it will always win in that respect. Because as we say, the power of a fish or crocodile is in the water. It's very, very hard to get a big fish out of the water. When a crocodile attacks its prey, it has most of its strength when it's in the water. If they if it can drag the prey into the water, it's game over. It uses its tail to hook against and just provide a lot of traction for itself using the tail 
hugging the water. Extremely powerful. And that is say, the power of sin is in the law. The power of sin is in the law. The power of a fish is in water. As that of a crocodile. The law is what gives sin power, just as the water is what gives the fish power. So sin is only afraid of the blood of Christ that made propitiation for all our sin. Only Christ and him crucified. That's gospel testimony. Verse 12. Then someone took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So Israel has defeated the Philistines, and Samuel took a stone and set it as a stone of remembrance and called it Ebenezer, the stone of help. And saying by that, this far the Lord has taken us, the Lord had, has helped us. But what is that stone of help? that helps in the time of war against the Philistines, a stone of remembrance, a stone of remembrance. It is none other than the stone of stumbling, the rock of of offense. It is the Lord Jesus. As often as you do this, You remember me, remember me. Ebenezer is Christ Jesus. He is the stone of help. It is he who gave them victory over the Philistines. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Pay attention to that. In all the days of Samuel, that is very important to note. In other words, the Philistines' sin was subdued only in the days of Christ Jesus. Sin stopped coming to condemn his people because of the sacrifice of himself in his days. Because once Samuel is gone, the Philistines are back. They are coming back. We're going to be having the Philistines in the next few chapters. We're going to have them back. Only in the days of Samuel were the Philistines subdued. In this particular context. But if you remove Samuel, if you remove Christ, and put God's people back under Moses, guess what? The Philistines will immediately be back to work. They'll be back to war, back to condemn. We're going to find Goliath back, (laughs) that giant. The Philistine is back to cause trouble. When Saul becomes king, the Philistines are back because Saul was a type of the law. Saul was a type of the law, and we shall expound on that matter when we get to the point 
to that point, which will be maybe next week or the week after. But King Saul was a type of the law. And as soon as he ascends the throne, Chabo gets back to Israel. Verse 14, First Samuel 7. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to them. From Ekron to Gath and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. So all the losses that Israel had seemingly incurred were recovered. Why? Because there's no loss in Christ. No matter the circumstances of life, the redeemed never really ultimately make a loss in Christ. God will, God will restore and has restored everything for us in Christ. That is the truth of the gospel declaration. A salvation imperishable kept for us in the heavenly places every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's no loss in Christ. And the text says, verse 14, second part of it. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. This sacrifice also made peace for Israel, not just with the Philistines, but with the Amorites. The remnants of the Canaanites, the Amorites were remnants of the Canaanites. And the larger point, larger gospel point being that in the wake of the sacrifice of Christ, God has reconciled us to himself, number one. He has defeated the Philistines. He has chased them out of town. They cannot bring their condemnation. But together with that, Christ has also made peace with the blood of his cross. He has made peace for us with the blood of his cross in every aspect in which we needed peace with God. Even the Amorites. They were causing problems in their own way. Peace for God's people. Verse 15. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. It's Christ Jesus who judged his people and is judging his people. He is ruling and reigning among his people in righteousness for all his life. And that means for all of eternity. Since all judgment was given him, all power and authority was given to Christ. So all the days of Samuel's life, he was judging Israel. All the days of the life of Christ, he is judging his church. And that means for all of eternity, Christ will always be the head of the church. Verse 16, he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. We have a wonderful message on Gilgal, the circumcision of Israel by Joshua at Gilgal. It's a wonderful, wonderful gospel message. It's a wonderful message. Go look for it. 
all the men of Israel who entered into the promised land had to be circumcised by Joshua himself. He did not subcontract. Christ has to circumcise everyone who comes to God. That's the major point. But go and listen to the message. It's wonderful. But I want to draw you to the routine of Samuel in his judgment of Israel. He had a routine, he had a route that he used to follow from one place to another in a circuit, going round and round as it were. He would go from one place, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and back. Verse 17, but he always returned to Ramah. Why? For his home was there. There he judged Israel and there he built an altar to the Lord. So after he had finished his work, he would always return to Ramah because his home was there. (laughs) So it did not matter where he had gone to conduct God's business. He would always come back to his home. Thus the Lord Jesus left his home to come down to earth for the suffering of death to make the judgment of sin on account of his people, the judgment of sin in the body of his flesh. And after his resurrection, to return to his home. And that means heaven, where he is now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high with the glory that he had with the Father from before the foundation of the world. Christ always to go back home. And that means he was not to be kept under the power of death. The Christ had to resurrect, that he may go back home, that he may be seated, because he had made an end to the purification of sin. But I wanted to revisit the stone that Samuel erected and called Ebenezer and speak more to it since it is the title of our message and also since the middle name of my son is Tinaya. Ebenezer, and this will be in closing, but it's kind of a long closing. Ebenezer, this far the Lord who is our helper has taken us. Samuel said that in the wake of the defeat of the Philistines. Israel has gone through many things as a nation. They have suffered for 
430 years in Egypt under Pharaoh. And God came and set them free. But that 430 years long sermon was done. But God was not yet done preaching with them and through them. Yes, for 430 years, God was preaching a sermon, a gospel sermon of slavery to sin and law under Pharaoh. That was the whole idea of them being in Israel for 430 years to teach them of the oppression of sin and law. Because Pharaoh came and said, you make your bricks. I'm going to give you a quarter. I'm going to give you a standard, a number that you have to produce every single day. But guess what? I'm not going to help you with the materials that you need to meet that quarter. And that is the testimony of the law to say the law does not bend or reduce its requirements of righteousness just because you come and say, I am doing it because I love God. That does not work. I am not making bricks because I love Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not care for that. You make, you meet your quarter. So under that oppression of sin and law under Pharaoh, they have to be redeemed. God has to come down to redeem them by way of the blood of the Passover. That's the only way out of slavery. That is the only way out of sin and condemnation of the law by the blood of the Lamb. And that is in keeping with what we have just learned. And so we saw Israel leave Egypt by the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. So he took them through the desert and the wilderness and he delivered many sermons there too. It was purposeful on the part of God. And they got in trouble with him over and over because of their sin. And he killed hundreds of thousands of them along the way. He gave them the law through Moses and the law caused them trouble, and it caused Moses trouble. Moses was killed by God on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy 34, I believe. God says, you are not going to enter the promised land because you did not listen to me. Moses had been told by God the second time when Israel got thirsty, to speak to the rock for the water to come out for the people of Israel. The first time he had been instructed to strike the rock once and the water did come. The Holy Spirit, as a picture, did come out. Christ on the cross being struck one time and the water of salvation flowing out. The second time when the people of God were Thirsty, God says, don't strike Christ again. Christ is not offered twice. You now speak to him. Just speak to the rock. And Moses struck the rock 
again. And God says, you're not going to enter because you messed up my typology. But God was preaching something bigger that the people of God do not go into his promises by the mediation of the law, by the mediation of Moses. And so Moses was killed by God himself, which means Christ Jesus is he who brought to the end of the law on, on Mount Sinai. The children of, of Israel, they entered the land of Canaan with Joshua. That is with Christ, because Christ is Joshua. And the Lord did bless them with good things for a minute. But he did not remove their enemies. He did not remove all their enemies. He did not defeat all their enemies for them. He left some enemies in the promised land to teach them how to fight and to depend on him. And the enemies that were left were the Philistines. And so God, even though he has redeemed us in the new covenant, he has left the enemy of sin, the Philistines, to still cause us trouble, but not to condemn us, but to keep looking to Christ. And here they are still having running battles against the Philistines. And God did not completely wipe the Philistines and the Ammonites because they were part of this story. Of Christ. That's why they're there. They are the party of this, they are a part of the story of Christ. They represented sin and God's people struggle against it. We continue to struggle with sin even though we have been redeemed. Israel in possession of the promised land, but still struggling with their enemies. And that to say, the story of Christ cannot be told without sin. As I said in the beginning, the story of God's grace, of God's riches of love and redeeming grace of Christ's cross, of his glory, cannot be told apart from sin. And anyone who thinks sin was a mere accident is clueless of the matter they cannot Tell the story of Christ. I would say they are not qualified to tell the story of Christ. Sin was a necessary ingredient or instrument in God's eternal purpose in Christ. Sin had to be there. By God's own doing, it had to be there. The Philistines had to be there in the story of Israel. It's God who created the Philistines. <laughs> so our story began not in the hospital on the day that we were born. It did not begin when we heard about Jesus. It did not begin when we Believed, baptized, like many preachers and people presented. To make it a story that began just a few months back, a few years back, when I decided for Jesus. 
<laughs> Our story began with God. It began with Christ. His love for his son. It began with his glory. It began with his perfection. To demonstrate his perfection. Because perfection must be appreciated. That's the whole matter of salvation. Perfection must be appreciated by someone. A sinner. They appreciate grace. The perfection of grace. They appreciate the perfection of the righteousness that has been freely given. Christ to have a people to himself. To showcase to put on display the beauty of his glory. For them to behold his goodness. As he prayed in John 17 and said, Father, I wish that these that you have given me would behold, come and behold the glory, the beauty that I had with you before the foundation of the world, that they may come and be blown away. (laughs) but through redemption they come to behold the glory of Christ through redemption because the experience and possession of God's goodness by nature cannot be end it can only be given can only be freely bestowed salvation is only Freely bestowed. You do not cause it. You don't beg for it. It's given. And so he chose a people to himself and put them in Christ by his grace, which means apart from looking to anything that Caitlin has done or will ever do, whether good or bad, it has nothing to do with her standing in Christ. It is all to do in that God was pleased to count her among those that he will bless. And in the unfolding of the story, the unfolding of the story of Christ, it seemed like he had lost the plot of the story. Seemed like the devil had come and messed up his cheese. Sin had entered into the world through Adam and the working of the devil and death through sin. The very bride that Christ is supposed to possess is now under condemnation, is now under death. But this was not to God's surprise as is being presented. This was part of the plot. It was part of the story. But how? How then shall the son have a bride who has been overtaken by sin that the son being holy in righteousness is going to possess? How is Christ going to possess a sinful bride? Because Christ is holy and righteous. How shall the bride be beautified? 
How shall she be made holy without blemish and above reproach? How do we do that? She needs more than foundation cream. She needs more than makeup. For this level of business, it cannot be by her own works of righteousness. Now that she has been found naked, what do we do, God? What do we do? What bride goes for her wedding in their birthday suit? Unless if she has had too many, one too many for her bridal shower. The bride was found naked in a birthday suit in respect to righteousness. And you're not going to go to a wedding where the bride shows up naked. Everybody was like, what? She thought to make some fig leaves to cover her own nakedness, but that proved to not be enough. The fig leaves would dry out before the exchange of the vows and expose her nakedness to all the denizens of heaven. Could she cover herself with the works of the law? The righteousness of her own deeds? No, that is too late. If this marriage should happen, it's too little too late because by the deeds of the law shall no man be justified before him, before God, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it's too late for you and I to be married to Christ on account of our own righteousness. And if this Bride, his bride should be married. Christ must come down and fight against the Philistines and their testimony against her. In Zimbabwe, Shona Kaucha, if a man dies without being married, he's supposed to be buried with a rat tied to his waist in shame. And Christ is not that man who's going to die and be buried in shame. He must come down and fight. Pharaoh, he said to Moses, I have come down. Goliath says, bring me a man to come down. The one man to come down and fight against me, the Philistine, Goliath, and fight and kill me and show that he is a real man. So he must come down and fulfill all that was written in the contract of his marriage to his bride. Every jot and tittle and say at the end of it, it is finished. I've made my bride fit for marriage. I have perfected her. The fathers of the bride in a lot of cultures, Zimbabwean culture, are they who set the bridegroom price. And they say, our daughter is not leaving until you pay this much. And for Christ, the price was his death. 
the price of blood. And so we are told in Acts about the church that he purchased with his own blood. And the father said, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I'll pass over her in judgment. I'll accept her. I will not condemn it. When I see the blood, but that's the only condition of his salvation. And by his blood, he has redeemed us. He has reconciled us. He has made us holy, justified, perfected us, adopted us as God's children, accepted us. We have been accepted. And by and because of him and through him, we say with Israel of old, Ebenezer, we have arrived. Finally, we have arrived. This far, God has helped us to bring us to himself. This far, how far? How far has God brought us. Not from the days that people were drinking beer and partying. That's not far enough. That was two weeks ago. (laughs) From election. From election before the foundation of the world. God has remained faithful to his plan, to his purpose. That far. From election to justification. He has helped us because he did it all by himself. But how far from Adam to Christ? How far from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary to the new covenant? How far the good Samaritan who was on a mission, Christ. Christ came to the world as a man on a mission. And he saw a man who was beat down on the road to Jericho and left for dead. And the man could not crawl by himself his way to the inn. And if he had made it to the inn, he did not have the money to pay because he had been robbed of all things that he had. Also, he was naked. You don't show up at the hotel to check in naked. Does not work. So the good Samaritan came and he picked him. He dressed him. He nursed his wounds. And he brought him to the inn and the innkeeper and paid a deposit to Denari to say, keep this one of mine And if there's anything that you need over and above what I paid, you put it to my account to say all of salvation is of Christ alone. It's of grace alone. No one maintains themselves in the inn of the New Testament. The inn was a picture of the New Testament. This far, this man was taken by the Good Samaritan. From the point of death, where they could not be held by the law, as evidenced by the priest and the Levite who came and they passed by. 
They saw the man, they didn't care. The law cannot help us. That is you and me. That is how far Christ has taken us. And in glorification, we shall say again, Ebenezer, we have arrived because this far God has taken us. This far into heaven to behold of his glory through a way that was not known to us. A way that has been revealed to us through Christ. And that is also true for and to every one of us in our small context of this passing life. We had our beginning point in this particular life. And many things have happened in between. And will continue to happen things good and things bitter. We have taken the bitter with the sweet. The bitterness of sickness, sickness of mind and of body, weaknesses of the flesh, weaknesses because of sin, and weaknesses just because of the flesh, the pain of this flesh of disappointment, of broken marriages, broken friendships, of the death of dear and loved ones, untimely to us. Because we're thinking we still had our mom, our friend, our wife, for another year, two years, 20 years, and then they're gone. the bitterness of our own sin, the experience of it, of our unfaithfulness to our loved ones, our unfaithfulness to God, the sin of others, we also experience the sin of others. The loss of employment, the loss of our investments, loss of freedom, of incarceration for some. Some have been incarcerated. Some innocent people incarcerated still. Of loneliness for many. I saw a survey that says loneliness in America is one of the biggest epidemics. Like 48 million people live by themselves. 48 million people. Loneliness of Helplessness in that loneliness, depression. And half of our stories will never be told by us for lack of memory and proper context. But the complete story has been told already in Christ because all things work out for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And the doctrine that undergirds all that is predestination. And life has brought many challenges. 
And if you have not experienced them yet, just wait a little bit. It's coming. We tried and tested. The Philistines will come and take you to war with them. And what is going to be your testimony when the Philistines come? Are you going to be doubling down on law or are you going to be running to the sacrifice? And that you say, sin will come and bring the West out of you even as if to destroy you. But that is not the end of the story. There's no sin that is powerful enough to destroy the one whom Christ has redeemed. The real story is this. It's 1 Samuel 7.13. Underline that. 1 Samuel 17. 13, sorry. 1 Samuel 7, verse 13. The Philistines were subdued. That's past tense. The Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore with their condemnation into the territory of Israel, the territory of the new covenant. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. It is the hand of God against the Philistines, not your hand against the Philistines. It is the hand of Christ on the cross that is against the Philistines, not your hands. So the end of the story is Christ's death and resurrection, his glorification, and our glory in him. The Philistines, sin and its condemnation, subdued and will not come anymore in the territory of God's people to condemn them because our sins he remembers no more. And so our Lord, the Ebenezer, our helper, says in John 16, these things. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Amen. You're done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful gospel things that you've given us that we may have peace because in the world it seems like the Philistines are still alive and undefeated. But we go to the testimony of Israel under Samuel that they were overcome, they were subdued because of the sacrifice that was given. The sacrifice of Christ subdued all the Philistines, the sin and its condemnation. The law fulfilled on our behalf and now we have peace, we have righteousness and we thank you Lord Jesus for all these wonderful things given us by the Holy Spirit. You bless your people with ears to hear. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God's people. 
I spent much of yesterday resting. And you don't want me to rest. People say, oh, you rest. If I rest, that's four hours of talking. Okay, so pray that I don't get rest. If you want a shorter sermon. But God be praised for his truth. Have a good day.